you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, and I also send my greetings to you, they're visitors today, it's good to have you, and we look forward to getting to know you more, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew, we encourage you to use, uh, use that Bible, take it with you if you would like. Romans chapter 7. And verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for uh, the promise that you would illuminate uh, the minds of your people to its truth and that you would awaken the sinner to their need of the Savior. And so, Lord, may you have uh, us to be very uh, receptive to your word to your spirit, whether we be the believer or still yet the person to become a believer. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, we spent multiple weeks in Romans chapter 6. And as we transition out of that book, I would remind you again that Romans chapter 6 is one of the most important chapters in the Christian experience. It shows you uh, our union in Christ, in his death, as well as in his resurrection. It becomes the springboard into the practical Christian life found in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And now as we enter Romans chapter 7, uh, this may well be one of the best-known chapters of the Bible. If I was to ask you, uh, as a Christian, um, what is Romans 7 about, you would smile and you would talk about the war, the daily war that you fight. Uh, it certainly has that picking up in verse 14. But what we have in Romans 7, as we transition, as I mentioned, out of 6, we have Paul's continual teaching on the fruits of justification. The fruits of justification. In Romans chapter 5, we have the fruit of peace with God because of justification. In Romans chapter 6, we have holiness or the life of sanctification, which is inseparably linked to justification. And then in Romans 7, uh, we're introduced to freedom. We're introduced to freedom from the bondage of the law because of justification, because of the work of Christ. We will also see in Romans chapter 7 the very real war that we fight on a continual basis. But Romans 7, uh, as you go into it, you'll see that the law dominates. The law is the main theme of Romans chapter 7. 
It appears 29 times in 25 verses. In addition, we have the word commandment six times. And also, the, the law or the commandment is called the written code. But Romans 7, as much as it is so rich and does give us an understanding of the Christian life, as well as the place of the law, uh, before we're a Christian, as well as in Christ, it prevents a significant challenge. Romans 7 is a challenge. And let me give you a couple of reasons why that is so. The first one is because there's heated uh, controversy from verses 14 to the end of whether Paul is a converted man or an unconverted man. I don't see where it's that much of a controversy personally, but there are great men uh, throughout church history who have expounded and believe that it was Paul in the unconverted state. I'm not in that position, but nevertheless, uh, it's there. Uh, the second reason why Romans 7 is a challenge is because right out of the gate, he uses the illustration of marriage. The illustration of marriage. Uh, this is not by any means an exhaustive teaching on marriage. That's not what Paul's purpose was. There's other passages of scriptures for that. And what happens often in this very difficult understanding of the illustration is some commentators, I believe, have stretched this. They try to make the married woman illustrate the believer and the husband the law. Others, like Augustine, uh, make the husband representative of our old nature. Still others think the husband represents Adam. And I believe there's problems with all of those. All of those stretching that. Uh, John Murray would say that, that, and I'll paraphrase him, the great Scotsman, he would say this. He says, the passage is all about death to an authority that's over you in particular the law. And so as we read this, we want to accept it for what it is, and it isn't about a marriage, and it isn't to be stretched with all these metaphors or all this making it uh, what it doesn't say. And the reason why that it can't be what they do say about the woman illustrating the believer and the husband the law, or the old man uh, concerning the law, is the fact is, is that the husband, the husband does die, but the law never dies. It isn't the law that's dying. We are told we die to the law. It's not that the law dies. Paul would say that the believer, not the law, dies under, uh, from the power and dominion of the law. And so the whole context of this, this illustration is simply that. Is that as long as you're alive, in, this, in the context of marriage, you are under the authority of God's law. And when you die, you are not. Now, if you die in a state of unbelief, you will reap the eternal, the eternal consequences of the broken law. But in this sense here, Paul just wants to remind us and to tell us that as long as you and I are alive and every human being is that we are under this law. Now, it changes drastically when we're in Christ, and we'll talk about that because the text talks about that. But let's don't make this say what it doesn't. This is about death. It's about death to God's law being over us. And that only applies if you're in Jesus Christ. And you have no other way to get out of under that law apart from Him. 
Now, Romans 7 is, uh, is seamlessly connected to Romans chapter 6. You'll see in verse 1, it is a continual. He says, or do you not know, brothers? So we can remove the, uh, the verses and see, and how, since it wasn't in the original Bible anyway, but it continues on Romans 6 into Romans 7. In Romans 6, Paul would remind us that we have died to sin. Verse 2, how could we who died to sin still live in it? In Romans 7, he says we've died to the law. And they're inseparable. Because in Romans 7, we'll find that the law defines sin, what we died to in Romans chapter 6. And our union, as we saw in chapter 6, continues in chapter 7. And it's freedom. It's freedom that we have with union of Christ. And he will contrast the workings of the law that without union in Christ, the law puts a person in bondage. It puts a person in captivity. Now, this is very important in our evangelistic understanding. You can't rightly preach gospel unless you preach law. Uh, you have to have both. Because the gospel is good news only in the sense that you know the bad news. And Paul will tell us, and we'll look at this next week, uh, the bad news of what the law does. But there's more of that even in today. But next week he will tell us that he knew sin because the law identified sin. But there's a contrast, and this contrast continues. But Paul uses contrast in the most logical of all his letters, and that is Romans. And he would use contrast out of the gate in chapter 1 all the way through. And now he's going to contrast the law to the unsaved and the law as it is in Christ, our union in Christ. And I'm going to talk more about this, but let me just give you the radical difference. The radical difference. If you're not a Christian today, if, if you've never come to that point of seeing you are totally without hope unless Jesus Christ saves you and saves you alone, then this law to you is no delight. This law is unyielding. This law is oppressive. This law crushes you. Mount Sinai brings you no peace. It brings you no joy. But if you're in Christ, and you're going to hear today, you're going to see what in Christ does for you in regards to God's law. In Christ, you have a delight in the law of God. And Paul would tell us that even in the midst of his struggles in Romans chapter 7. Verse 22, he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That delight is not in the unregenerate. Look at our society today. It's full of the unregenerate. And there's not a single person who delights in the law of God. In fact, we're shaking our fists daily in the face of God and His law. But, and this is a good way, if you struggle for assurance, if you're struggling, uh, you can ask yourself a simple question. How do you view God's law? How do you view your scripture? How do you view the commands? Because when you are born again, when God gives you a new heart, you know what he gives you? He gives you a heart that delights in his word. He del you delight in his law. As Paul would say, I delight in the, in the law of God in my inner being. The psalmist in Psalm 119, he would proclaim his delight in God's law at least ten times. He would also say that he delights uh, in his precepts equally a number of times. Psalm 119, 174, he says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. And then in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love your law. So ask yourself the simple question even right now. 
Are you eager to hear the word of God preached? Are you des- desirous that you have to read your Bible because your soul is longing to know the God that this Bible uh, reveals? Your approach and my approach to the scripture will tell us much about our Christianity. It will even tell us whether or not we are a Christian. How many times have you shared the Bible with, with an unsaved person and the person responds, I don't still understand it. Well, and you can say, well, with all due respect, that's how you should respond. Because the natural man does not know the things of God. But get with a young Christian. You know what you're going to find with a young Christian? You're going to find a young Christian who just can't get enough of the Bible. And I, sometimes I, I, I need to hang around with young Christians who have a hunger for the Bible. Because that hunger is what, is what gives evidence of new life. There's a distinguishing difference between the believer and the unbeliever in regards to this law that Paul is going to say. The unbeliever does not want the law reigning over them, though they can't do anything about that. Uh, The believer wants nothing but that law to reign over them, and they delight in it. There was a poor blind girl who lived in France, and she had uh, a copy of the Gospel of Mark in raised letters, Braille, And she learned to read it by the tips of her fingers. By constant reading, these became calloused. Now imagine that. She read her Bible so much with her fingers that they they became callous. And her sense of touch diminished until she couldn't distinguish the characters. With deep sorrow because she could no longer read the word of God, she cut the skin from the ends of her fingers, hoping to increase their sensibility, only to destroy it. She felt that she must now give up her beloved book. And weeping because she could no longer read the word of God, she pressed the book to her lips and said, Farewell, farewell, sweet word of my heavenly Father. And to her surprise, her lips were more delicate than her fingers and discerned the form of the letters by her lips. All night, She perused with her lips the word of God and overflowed with joy at this new skill learned. It's a convicting story. And yet for the believer, that is the heartbeat of the word of God. And remember, I'll say this as a side note, and and likely it's, it's more for me than it is you. You do not read your Bible just to gain knowledge. We saw that this morning in our Sunday school, our ABF, that uh, under the, uh, teaching on the fear of God, is that you come to not the knowledge of God to know God, not to know about God, and there's a huge difference. And same thing with the law of God. The believer delights in it, the unbeliever does not. And the unbeliever is going to fall under the heavy bondage and the captivity of the Word of God, which we will see. And so as we work our way through this, so look at verses 1 through 3. For all humans, and that includes us who are in Christ, but we're, we're at one time not in Christ, what the law first, it binds. It binds. Verse 1, Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding. The ESV says binding. Other words are dominion, jurisdiction, authority over on a person only as long as he lives. Now, when Paul says, or do you not know, brothers, he's not addressing the Jew only. Now, he had done that earlier in the chapters of Romans. 
Because they were talking about the privilege they had as the law, and he would tell them, and he would just slice and dice their arguments of being privileged, since they had the oracles of God. So he's addressing the whole, the whole people of Rome, the Gentile and the Jew alike. And he's saying that now this law applies to all, showing that all, unless in Christ, the law binds them. It binds them or holds dominion over them. It exercises complete control over a person. And you may not even be able to quote any of the moral law of God. And yet you are still under that bondage. Or I should say that binding. I told you this before. I remember a 19-year-old kid playing basketball. It wasn't too long ago. Um, preached, we were preaching outside. It was in the summer. And uh, he came up to me afterwards, and uh, he said, uh, Pastor, I'd like to talk to you. And I said, awesome, let's talk. He said, but I've got to get something, something clear first. I'm not religious. And, uh, and I said, well, we already have something in common. And, and, and then I, uh, he looked at me, and he says, um, why do I have to go to hell? And I said, well, I said, you're a lawbreaker. He's kind of looked at me like, huh? Because you're a lawbreaker. And I, I knew for a minute that you better be careful and don't go with this Christian ease because there's a 19-year-old kid who doesn't know anything. And so I said back, I said, yeah. I said, we are lawbreakers. And I said, do you ever hear the law of God? He said, uh, uh, well, I said, just give me one. I said, he said, isn't one of them be kind to one another? And I just kind of sunk and I thought... Be very careful that you make no assumptions about anybody in the culture today, what they do know and what they do not know. Because you can actually do, uh, distance yourself in dealing with people by assuming that they know things. This young kid did not know what the law of God was. None of it. Now, is he free from that? And we went on and talked about that. I said, well, let me give you a couple examples. And I said, you're going to see that we're both lawbreakers. And we, we went through that and worked through that. And eventually we went there to the gospel. Uh, the point I want to get at here is that the law, as Paul would say, it binds every human being. Whether that kid knew it or not, he was binded by the Word of God. You say, well, that's not fair. Well, it actually is because the law binds conscience. It binds conscience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. We saw that earlier. The Gentile cannot say, well, I don't have the oracles, I'm not guilty. And Paul says, no, you are guilty by conscience. He said, they show the work of the law written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even accuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You know what the, you know what the, greatest, the greatest thing we're seeing in our, in our country, the dying of our nation, is we are seeing a nation without conscience. We are seeing a nation. It wasn't, what, 60, 70 years ago, we were, we were known as a God-fearing, I didn't say Christian, a God-fearing country. And there were people who were labeled God-fearing. They weren't Christians. I grew up in a small town of God-fearing people, and they weren't Christians. But they had a reverence for someone that they didn't know. 
And there was a level of morality that was rooted in the Judeo-Christian ethic. And even though not in a Christian home, I grew up knowing right from wrong and felt wrong. And so it was indeed this reality, we don't have a conscience anymore. And the scary part is in Romans 1, when you see God giving over a people, giving over a people, giving over a people finally to a reprobate mind, their conscience have been so seared that they're beyond hope. And Paul would say, Paul would say to all that the law is binding. It has dominion over us in our conscience. How do you know how do you know you've done wrong by the barometer within you the guilty conscience And if you suffer from a guilty conscience which all of us do at times and certainly outside of Christ the only antidote and the only cure to a guilty conscience is the blood of Jesus Christ that's it It isn't you saying or I'm sorry it isn't you you're trying to do better it is the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you and there is nothing more freeing and more enjoying in a Christ, in, in, in the life of a human being than having a clear conscience and that's only because of the blood of Christ but the law, but but the law not only binds our conscience the the law also binds our conduct it binds our conduct You say, well, how so? Why did God give us the moral law? For conduct. For relationships. First four with him, the last six with each each other. But, you know, you can work your way through. And you can work your way through like the the man in the Gospels that told Jesus, you know, I've kept them all. I'm good. I've kept all the commandments. Well, he really didn't. And Jesus obviously knew that. But here's one for you. Have you, from the moment you've been born till now, have you done this? And this is the great and first commandment. That you love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Anybody want to stand up and say, that's me? The answer is no. Because you may say, well, outwardly, well, inward counts too. The fact is that we were created to love God. And we're created to love God above all things, all people. And we're supposed to do that with all of our being. That's the standard of conduct that God imposes upon us through, Jesus would say, these two commandments, loving God and loving people, these depend all the law. Can you see and feel the binding of the law upon us? God looks at me and says, Jim, you are commanded and expected by creation. To love me with every ounce of your being. And I look up to him and I say, I have not. And then you have to say, I cannot. You are in a binding by the law that you cannot break. And here is the most, here's what leads you to the gospel. My inability to keep the law does not remove responsibility to keep the law. I am still responsible for the the law of God, and so are you. Why is the gospel so precious? Because of that. Because I can say, I'm binded by your law, but I can't keep it. In fact, I break it every day. And then I have a law keeper that came and lived. And then I have one who was 
who was crucified for the broken law that's mine. And so the gospel becomes so precious and the word of God so precious because now I embrace the Lord Jesus who imparts to me, which what we've seen in 4, 5, and 6, he imparts to me a perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness that kept the law accredited to my account where I can say, free, I'm free. I'm not under the bondage or the binding of the law anymore. But if you... But if you're not a Christian today, whether you feel it or not, you are under that yoke. You are under that yoke. That cumbersome yoke of the law that all that goes from that yoke is the reins of sin to the the master slave, Satan himself. But here's what happens is now when you come to Christ, you get rid of the binding yoke of the devil and yourself and sin, and you put on the yoke of the one who said, come all to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. So we find then that the law in verses 1 through 3, the, the law binds our conscience and it binds our conduct. Now look at verses 5 and 6. From that binding in the captivity which we will see, the God, God's law produces in us and from us fruit. But it's always bad fruit. It's fruit that leads to death. Look at verse 5. For while... We were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused or inflamed by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Every one of us not only are under God's law, but every one of us are fruit bearers. Every one of us. If you're not a Christian, you bear fruit. And if you are a Christian, you bear fruit. If you're not a Christian, you bear fruit. Look what it says in verse 5. You bear fruit for death. So you're always bearing fruit. And so when you think about that context of it, what is this fruit leading to death? What is this? If I'm outside of Christ and I'm producing bad fruit, what is it that leads to my death? Not only perhaps a premature death in this life, but eternal or second death in the next. Well, you have to get a hold of what he says in the beginning of verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, that isn't living just in the human body. There are are times the flesh defines just the neutrality of the human body. This is not what he's talking about. He's talking about living in the flesh as describing the old unregenerate life of sin. Where you know what you do as as an unregenerate person? That's all you do is live a life of sin. You say, well, I do some good things. Well, according to who? According to who? Well, I look around. I mean, I'm not as bad as this person. Okay, yeah, but, but what's the standard? Well, it's, you know, I was raised. Okay, but where did that standard come from? And just to eventually take them all the way back to Adam. The point, the point at this is you cannot gauge your goodness based on horizontal comparisons. 
If you are looking, I, listen, if I'm going to do that, I guarantee you, I'm not a good person, but I guarantee you if I'm going to use a human comparison, I am going to track down somebody, if I can find them, that's worse than me. And so are you. You're not going to compare yourself with someone that, uh, you know, is standards above. So the only possible way then that you can understand the bad fruit that leads unto death and the, the good fruit that leads unto life, or life in the Spirit, he would say, is you must understand what the standard is. And what is the standard? It's the, it's the law. It's the law. For while we were living in the flesh, driven by our unregenerate life of sin, our sinful passions, our sinful passions, now what is, what is, what is this? Outside of Jesus Christ, as Genesis 6-5 would tell us, we produce nothing but evil thoughts and evil intentions. Intentions, And friends, as you think, so you live. As you think, so is your behavior, or so is your conduct. And if we're constantly thinking evil, and again, don't, don't measure yourself from society, or, me, or well, if we did that, we'd see how wretched we truly are. But don't measure yourself horizontally. You go to the law of God. And ask yourself this question. Have I loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, strength, and every, for, every, for my entire life? And the answer is you have not. So that means that you have failed to keep the law so that all that comes from you and me is bad fruit. And what does the law do? We'll see this next week. But the law does what? The law inflames this. Or we might even say that the law is the fertilizer on the unregenerate heart that produces this bad fruit. What's this bad fruit look like? Galatians 5, 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now here it is. Here is the bad fruit that's aroused by the law. And the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality... Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And Paul would then add this, and things like this, meaning the list goes on. And the list goes on and on and on. So when you look at the law of God, the law of God, and it's premature to say this, but I will, it's next week, is that the law of God identifies what sin is. But in the unregenerate, do you know what that identification does? For the unbeliever, unbeliever, the law says, thou shall not. And the old nature says, yes, I will. That's what it does. We are sinners by birth and we're sinners by volition. And the law says, thou shalt not, and my sinfulness says, I love the pleasures of sin, and I will. Watch a young child. Watch a little one. I got a couple of them coming up. Uh, they're on, their, on the road now you know, from, uh, from Virginia. And I, I was, this is a good illustration because it happened with, uh, with Alice, and I'm sure it happens. Talk to Jonathan and Caitlin, or talk to the Majikas, or talk to all the... And this is so true. If I'm not, then correct me, but I know it's true. 
Tell a little one, don't touch it. They walk over there, and, they, and you know, they've touched it once, and they're back over walk over, and they, or, or maybe they haven't. Maybe they're walking over there, and they know they're not supposed to. And they walk over there, and don't touch it, okay? They may, they, they may test it then, or they may back off. Depends. So they'll back off. But then, just stand back and watch them. Do they not go like this? Is that not true? That you tell them, don't do it, what are they going to do? They're going to test you. They're going to test you, and they're going to probably do the very thing that you didn't, or you're going to catch them before that. Or they may give you that nice little smile, you know, <laughs> as they walk over here to disobey the law. We do that all the time. We do that all the time. And Paul would say the law of God, it binds you. It binds your conscience. It binds your conduct. And unless Jesus Christ comes and sets you free from that bondage, then all you're going to do is live producing fruit that leads unto death. If there's anything of value I say, I said today, get this. Do not measure yourself by horizontal standards or what you think is the standard. You measure yourself by God's standard, period. And if you do that objectively, and you don't try to justify your behavior, if you do that objectively, you know what you're going to do? You are going to run so fast to the gospel. The gospel is so wonderful when you see how far away we are, and that we can't come back. Well, let's look at verse 6. Here's a third thing that we see about the law. Not only does it bind, not only does it produce uh, bad fruit... It holds us captive. We are a prisoner of war by the law. We are held in a, in, as a prisoner of war by the law. By now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. It's not the same as, as binding. Captive means to be held. It means to be bound. And what, what, is, the, what, is, the, what is the captivity that the law does for us? It's demands. It's demands. This captivity by the law, it will never show you mercy. It will never show you grace. It will never give you a pass. The law simply looks at you and it shows no compassion whatsoever. But let's remember this. The lawgiver is compassionate. But the lawgiver will not compromise his law for anybody. And that's why that you can have this, this so-called, which is it's, it's so much false teaching and so much stuff out there claiming to be Christian. That's why you can have professing Christians embracing lifestyles that are abominations and say God approves of that. Is it God is unwavering in his conditions. Unwavering his demands. You know what that means? In the conversation with that 19-year-old I told you earlier, the conversation went along this line too. I said, you know, I said, you can go to heaven without trusting Christ. He just kind of looked at me like he did when he didn't know what the moral law was. I said, here it is. I said, we've already talked about the moral law. We've talked about the Ten Commandments. I said, here it is. I said, you keep every one of those Ten Commandments from right now, this Tuesday night, for the rest of your life, you keep them all and you don't need Jesus. 
His first response was, was a good one and a right one. He says, I can't. I says, I can't. I said, precisely. I said, God's demands put you in prison. It holds you captive, if Paul would say. You are held captive. James 2.10 tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, you're guilty of it all. Do you see, can't you see the whole, the, the, whole, the whole thing we're trying to do here is we're trying to point to the absolute majesty and the beauty of the gospel. This gospel is so wonderful because we are in such a horrible condition and that we have absolutely no power whatsoever to break the binding. We have no power to produce good fruit. And we have no power to break out of the jail of God's demands from His law. A Christian, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, please go back and think about this often. If not, you'll lose the wonder of the gospel. You'll lose the, just, the, the sheer wonder and majesty and beauty of a God who would so love us that he who was offended and deserved absolute allegiance, he would look at us and say, you are my enemies, I deserve you nothing, but I'm going to give you everything. And that's, that's what really the church needs to be awakened to, the wonders once again of the gospel. Because it's not going to be difficult Sensitive people that are out there, it's not going to be difficult to see, let them confess that they're sinners and that the world is a mess. The more that we see this stuff unfolding every day, there are people that are afraid, there are people that are fearful, there are people that see that, hey, my, my, my life is a mess. And so you have an opportunity to say, let me tell you why it is like it is, and let me tell you the only answer to the way it is. And that leads us to verse, back to verse 4. We're going to move on now and look at the positive. What about Christ and the law for the believer? We've already seen for the law binds, it produces bad fruit, it holds us captive. That's before, that's, that's if you're not a Christian. But take a look what happens when you come to Christ. And, and, and I don't want anybody to walk out of here thinking, well, it's Jesus and my behavior. Or I don't want you to think what's well, Jesus and my church attendance, or Jesus and my uh, church service, or Jesus and my morality, or Jesus and whatever. If there's a Jesus plus, you're done. There is no Jesus plus. There is Jesus only. We just sang in Christ alone. Wonderful selection of songs today. In Christ alone, you have to understand that that is the only acceptable response to God. It's the only one that will set you free from the, the binding of the law, will set you free from bad fruit to good fruit, and will let you out of the jail of the law's demands. Verse 4, look, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. So he, here's the death. It's right after. Verse 4 is the interpretive verse of the illustration of marriage. Likewise, key word. My brothers, you also have died to the law. How did we die to it? We're still alive. And we said that as long as you're alive, the law has rule over you. He says, through the body of Christ. 
That takes us all the way back to Romans 6 and Galatians 2.20, is that your understanding of the Christian life must be your union in Christ. That is the most important truth that a Christian will ever begin to understand and apply. It's our union in Christ because it makes our identity Christ. And our union in Christ is union in his death, freeing us from the law, and our union in his resurrection to give us the power to delight and obey the law. Not perfectly, but certainly sincerely. Here's the greatest blessing of all. Not only is the law fulfilled by Christ for us, but the binding power of the law is broken. And we're binded now to who? To Him. Look what He says in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have, excuse me, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. Notice the next phrase. So that you may belong to another. Two great liberating truths of the Christian life. Under the umbrella of union with Christ is number one, we're bought. We're bought. And secondly, we're owned. We're bought and we're owned. God has selected and placed us in his forever family in in adoption. We're going to talk about adoption in Romans 8. I'm looking forward to that. We need to understand what adoption means. But when you, when you look at what Paul says here, he said, listen, the law crushed you. The law put you in captivity. But now because of your union in Christ, in the body of Christ, in his death and his resurrection, you now have been embraced and owned by him because he bought you. And friends, you will never be sold again. You will never ever be given away. Is once in Christ, always in Christ. Once bought, always bought. Once possessed, always possessed. And what happens to us as possessed people? Well, Peter would tell us. First Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It is so wonderful to be able to read the scripture and have God says that we are his people. And even more so when you're going through some really deep, uh, deep waters of affliction or trials or suffering, to be able to look upward and just simply cry out, my Father, my God, my Jesus, my, that little two-word my, two-letter word my, that's what Paul said and said, listen, you, you've been free from that, the law because he fulfilled the law both in its demands as well as in his debt. And as a result, he looks at you and says, I'm not ashamed to call you brethren. I'm not ashamed to call you sister because you are mine. Bought, possessed. So once under the bondage or the binding power of the law, We're now under the binding, loving power of the Lord Jesus. And we wear his yoke. And we wear his yoke, and it is an easy yoke. It is a simple yoke. Now, it it does get hard to wear sometimes. Uh, I I just kind of see the contradiction because it says it's easy. You know when it's hard? Is when you try to wear your yoke and his. When you try to wear, do his, your will and his will. Now, you'll never be under the yoke of the law again. But you can certainly be under the the heavy yoke of your selfishness. That's painful. And he loves you so much, he's not going to let you wear it long. 
Let's also look now at, um, at verse 4. Christ only frees us from the binding power of the law and by binding us to himself, but he also frees us from the, the binding power of the law and binding us to himself so that we'll bear fruit. We already saw the bad fruit that we all by nature will produce outside of Christ. But look what he says here. Likewise, my brethren, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit, for what? For God. He did not say that we would bear fruit so people would recognize us. He didn't say that we would bear fruit so someone would look at us and, and, and applaud our, our skills, our gifts, our knowledge. He says that you have been, you are in Him, you belong to Him, so because you belong to Him, you bear fruit for Him. Not unto us, not unto us be the glory, but unto you be the glory. Why is that psalm, why does it start out twice? Not unto us, not unto us, because we have a tendency to make it all about us. And the more that we focus on ourselves and just, I hope someone tells me that was a good sermon. You don't need to tell me that afterwards, please. I don't need to hear that. But what I want to get at is this. Don't try to seek glory in the fruit that is not yours anyway. You're not a fruit producer. You're a fruit bearer. There's a difference. We're fruit bearers. Last Sunday night we talked about the vine and the branches. Take away the vine and tell me what kind of fruit you're going to bear. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. This fruit is not self-generated. He said, we may bear fruit for God. And Jesus, in that parable of the, of the vine and the branches, said, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Well, what, what is this fruit? What is this fruit? Remember what the law produced, fruit to death, the ugly fruits of of pride and selfishness. Our union in Christ produces fruit. Jesus does not tell us what the fruit will be in John 15, so be careful. That's where you have to let the Scripture speak for Scripture, interpret Scripture. Calvin said that the fruit that Christ identifies is that of holiness and righteousness and is found in the fruit of Christ-like character. So this fruit unto God, what is the purpose of salvation? That God would, would create a people for His own possession, that they would become more and more like His Son. And so if you want to say, well, am I a fruit-bearing Christian? What you cannot say is that, it, is that the fruit of a Christian is another Christian. I don't make Christians. You don't make Christians. It's the fruit of Christ's character. It's the fruit of Christ's likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. What would happen if every session of Congress, every cabinet meeting, every meeting of any form of government all the way down, every home, every church, every place of employment, was populated with Christians who manifest the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Let's go. Let's go. Well, what would it be like? 
there would be the manifestation of Jesus Christ. Not only the proclamation of the gospel, but the affirmation of the gospel throughout the land. Do you know that that's our mission? Our mission is to bear fruit. It's the fruit of Christ's likeness. And the more that you're conforming to the image of Christ, the more that you're going to, you can't be silent about Christ. It's just, it's a natural outgoing. I mean, you know, silent Christians are just disobedient Christians. Is it we, but, but I'm not talking about ramping up and, and being arrogant in the, in the marketplace. That's not what I'm talking about. Is it, and it's just by natural, the more that you know, the more that you know Christ, the more that you're burdened to make him known. And the more that you want to bear the fruit of his character in other people's lives, that they might come to be free from the bondage of the law and free in him to walk in newness of life. And so if you want to know if you are indeed growing in your union in Christ, ask yourself this. Is there this progressive life of becoming more like Christ in righteousness and humility manifesting the character of him? Jesus says in John 15, I'm not going to go read it, John 15, 1 through 5. He says that, 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 that any branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And then he says that it would bear much fruit. There's a progressive in the Christian life. I should be more like Jesus Christ this year than I was last year. And you as a professing Christian, there should be more of this transformation of your being. I'm not saying get full of knowledge. That's important. But if the knowledge isn't transformational, as Michael Reese told us this morning, then the knowledge is futile. Is it knowledge? What did he say? Theological thugs? Is that what he said? Yeah, he says there's a lot of theological thugs. He says they get all this big knowledge, but it's not transformational because they're not walking in the fear of God. And so when Jesus says that you're going to bear fruit, more fruit, much fruit, this is transformation of the person. And Paul would say the more that we are beholding the glory of the Lord, the more that we are being transformed into His image. And that's the fruit. So ask yourself the question, am I a fruit-bearing, not fruit-producing, but a fruit-bearing Christian being transformed into the image of the vine and thus being Freed from the law, I'm now freed in him to produce the fruit of his likeness in all my spheres of influence. Finally, here's the last one, verse 6. In contrast to what the law does, Christ frees us from the law binding us to himself. Christ frees us from the, the law binding us to himself to bear fruit. And Christ releases us from the prison of the law to walk in the freedom or the newness of the spirit. Verse 6, but now we, have re- we are released from the law, having died to which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code or the law. Another contrast. Now, Paul would have mentioned this uh, in verse 4 of chapter 6. He said, we've been buried with him. There's our union, raised with him for the purpose of what? That we might walk in newness of life. So what is this newness? It appears twice here in in Romans 7, 6, as well as in Romans 6, 4. What is this newness? The new way of the Spirit is liberty, freedom, joy, in contrast to the bondage and the burden of the law. 
And here's one of the, here, here is one of the, the, the clearest evidence that we are walking in this newness of spirit. Is that there is an increasing, an increasing of Christ and people and a decreasing of ourselves. Paul would tell us in Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. And then verse 13, Only use your freedom as an opportunity, not for the flesh, but to serve, but to love and serve one another. So if I want to know if I'm bearing fruit, I want to know if I'm walking in this, in this freedom of the Spirit, then my, my testimony is going to be that of, of the Baptist. Christ is increasing and I am decreasing. I go back to what Reeve said. Reeve says, you know what happens when the fear of God controls the Christian? And he talks about humility. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. And humility isn't uh, you know, thinking of uh, selfless. Humility is actually forgetting yourself. Humility is actually having, is putting self on a shelf. And when I am indeed walking in the freedom of the Spirit, it's Christ who's magnified and Jim gets out of the way. And you, you don't want Jim being the center of my life. That's ugly. The freedom of the Spirit is a freedom to make Christ much of Christ and little to nothing of self. And you can't manufacture that. You can't. There's a, false, there's a false piety out there that you can see in a mile away. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a newness of spirit that makes much of Christ and literally nothing of self. And so Paul would introduce us in Romans chapter 7 to the law. And he would tell us that the law binds, uh, that the law holds us captive, the law produces bad fruit. That's all by birth. That's what we are. In Christ, though, we've been given freedom. We've been given freedom to be owned by Him. Uh, we've been given uh, freedom to bear fruit, His character for Him. And we've also been given the freedom to walk in newness of life. And so the question would be, and we'll close with this, the question would be this. Where are you? Where are you today? Are you still in the, bi- in, in the bondage of the law? Are you still have a guilty conscience that you know you haven't kept God's law and that you've not experienced the freedom that comes from new birth in Jesus Christ? The blood of Christ cleanses you from all sin. Are you still in the bondage to the law? Uh, please don't try to obey that law on your own because you will just drive yourself to deeper despair. Maybe you're a believer today, but you're not delighting in the law as you should. Ask God to give you a love for his word. A love for His Word that's manifested that you come, to, you come to this Word not to just get something. You come to this Word to get Him. You come to get Him. After all, that's who the book is about. Maybe you're a Christian today that you are delighting in the law of God and you're weary. And you're weary. Just remember is that God is at work in you. Grace works all the time whether you feel it or not. And you stay the course and you run the race, and you fight the fight. And God, in this transformation of you being like Christ, you have a whole bunch of people observing you, and you don't know the fruit that's hanging off of you is not being picked by those observers that are watching you. Father, thank you so much for your love, and thank you for the law that shows us our sin, our captivity, our bondage, and thank you for the Lord Jesus who came to fix our great dilemma And we're so grateful for that. And may the people who are still under the bondage of the law, may they see Christ as the great great freedom, as the one who come and to set them free if they'll just come and believe. 
and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.